Welcome to Jesus Pursuit's weekly sermon, where our mission is bringing the good news and demonstrating the kingdom. Join us live for Worship in the Word, Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on our YouTube channel. We hope you are encouraged and equipped by this week's word with our senior pastor, Emily Tadro. Well, we're going to start something this morning that's going to go for a while. You probably are not aware of this, but we are going to jump into a study, a Bible study. What? What? We're charismatic. We don't do that. We sure do. We're going to do a study in the book of Romans, and we're going to start today, and it's going to be awesome. And I've been feeling this for over a year now, and I keep mentioning it to our staff. Like, hey, we got to do a study on the book of Romans. We should do that. And then it's like next month. Hey, we should start that. And then I was like, you know what? I'm starting it tomorrow. I'm like, this week. We're doing it. We're jumping in. So I feel the Lord on it. And um, I think it's going to be really, really great for all of us. Whether you've read the book of Romans nine million times or you've never read it, there's something really powerful. And it's a very timely chunk of scripture. Um, I'm going to do a little just backdrop on the book of Romans before we actually jump into the text. So this morning we're going to just, we're going to go from Romans 1, 1 through 17. Uh, We won't take on the whole chapter this morning, but it's, Romans is arguably one of the most preached books of the Bible. Um, it is probably one of the most quoted. I mean, every book in the Bible is important. So let me just say that. But Romans has been one of those eye-opening, transformational books that helps you understand the goodness and the grace of God in a way that I don't think I've ever seen in any other study, in any other chapter, except for maybe Galatians. <laughs> that one's got a lot of good grace on it, too. But um, it is just a powerful letter that was written to the Roman church by the Apostle Paul. Everybody know who the Apostle Paul is? Just in case you don't, because we're all at all different, you know, growth spaces in this, in this room. Paul was not one of the original 12 disciples, but he is probably the most impactful apostle. Like so much of the New Testament is written by him. Um, he was not one of the original 12. In fact, he never walked with Jesus uh, while Jesus was doing his earthly ministry. He didn't, he didn't run with him like the 12 disciples. He was a religious scholar, he was a Pharisee, and he was um, a religious zealot, not in the way that they called them religious zealots. Um, Back then it was more like they were, the zealots were raging against the Pharisees, but he was a Pharisee, he was one of those religious dudes that anybody that didn't fit the mold of religiosity, he was after them to purify the, uh, 
the Jews, basically. He wanted them to have a pure understanding of the law and to live by the law. And so the new converts, those that were Christians, the, the church, those that were walking in the way, um, is what they called it, those who had come into the faith had been touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were a threat to the religious system. And so he was like the chief persecutor of Christians. Paul was. When he was doing this, his name was Saul. Saul's name means sought out one. He was like a big deal um, in the Jewish community and among the religious people. I was going to make a joke at the expense of someone else. I'm going to censor myself. Thank you. It would have been really funny too. But that is not kind. We just have a few religious people out there in church land, even in our Christian culture that kind of persecute people that don't line up with their theology, right? Most of them would throw stones at me simply because of my ladiness. <laughs> you know, God could not speak through me because of my gender, my chromosomes. And um, that's threatening to the religious spirit. And Paul was one of those guys. And it ran deep, so deep. And I want to say, this is what religion will do to you, unchecked. And when I say unchecked, I mean outside of relationship with Jesus, outside of relationship with the Holy Spirit. Our religious spirit will justify hate. Our religious spirit will justify murder. That's what the religious spirit ultimately does. It killed Jesus, and it killed countless Christians, and it's killed people in crusades, killed the Jews in the Holocaust. It's nasty, nasty stuff. And Paul was numero uno head chancho of religiosity until he was walking down the road, Damascus, and a bright light of truth, a blinding light of truth met him on the road. And though he'd never walked with Jesus on his earthly ministry after Jesus died, rose, and ascended, he met this blinding light of truth on the road, and it was Jesus. And this blinding light of truth spoke truth to Paul, who was known as Saul then, and he said, why are you persecuting me? And he knew in that moment that he had met God, and he knew exactly what he was talking about. He knew that when he was saying, why are you persecuting me, when he was killing Christians or holding the coat for those that were throwing stones, if you remember just earlier, um, well, you might not remember because maybe you didn't read it, but in Acts, just before Paul has this encounter, 
he's holding the, the jackets while they stoned a Christian named Stephen. And he watched and nodded in approval. And he gave like the, yeah, let's do this. And he gave the approval, the religious spirit approval. This is a good deed. And he did that kind of stuff. He was, he, people were in terror of Saul. This is the guy that wrote so much of this holy scripture that I love so deeply. And the reason he writes what he writes is because he had an encounter with the man Jesus, with the resurrected one, with the spirit of truth himself. And the spirit of truth himself spoke truth and broke the religious spirit in an instant. And he literally blinded Paul. Like, his eyes were blind. He could not see. He had to be led by the hand. And he stayed in this blinded state for days until a Christian with courage. Can you imagine? This is the guy that's killing everybody. And the Holy Spirit speaks to you and says, go and pray for Saul to have his eyes be opened. It'd be like going and hanging out with Hitler and you're a Jew, like that kind of trepidation. And he goes at the word of the Lord, and he breaks the spirit of blindness off of him, and his eyes are open to see the truth, and he is a new man. Anybody had one of those kind of encounters in the room? Yeah, come on. Maybe we weren't killing people. Maybe we were. But how many of us have had hate in our heart? Yeah, I have. How many of us have been angry and felt justified in it? A lot of us. How many of us were going one way thinking we were good, we're good? And the spirit of truth stepped in the middle and said, you're going the wrong way you're going to kill somebody. Only my dad knows what that is. <laughs> hmm. Anybody seen planes, trains, and automobiles? Okay. Oh, my gosh. So this guy, Saul, he was, he was that. He's changed. He's transformed. You can read more about his conversion, and you should. What, this is the thing that I love so much about um, a study in the Scripture. You might be in the book of Romans, but suddenly you find yourself in Acts. Then you find yourself in 1 Corinthians. Then you're in Galatians because they're all connected. And you find these stories. So when in Romans, when it references, when we get into it, verse 1, it automatically throws you into Acts chapter 9. If you want to go and study the Bible and like really learn what he's talking about. It's so exciting. It's such an adventure. And... I highly recommend learning how to study the Bible um, and interrogate the Bible. And this is just a side note. I won't do this teaching this morning. But my favorite way to learn to study the Bible is in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy. You may look at the genealogy and go, wow. What a bunch of names and gobbledygook. Like, why did you just say 
70,000 million names. That's not a number, but it's one that I chose. And um, there's so many names in there. But if you go through each name and you interrogate the Bible and go, who is Tamar anyway? And why is she in the lineage of Jesus? You're going to hear a radical story about redemption. And if you follow that thread in the genealogy, you're going to see the the thread of covenant all the way through from beginning to end. And you're going to go, there's no other person. There's no other one who could have been the Messiah. You're going to like have such an understanding of the fullness of the Old Testament and just like the intricacy of the gospel and how Jesus really is the only one. It's so exciting to me. I love to read the Bible. I love to study the Bible. And Romans is no different. You start from verse 1 and you're, you're just, you're in it. You're on a journey. But before we get there, I still want to set up Romans a little bit. So you can read more about Paul's conversion from Saul to Paul, his salvation in Acts 9, Acts chapter 26. And Galatians 1 talks a little bit about that. There's more, but those Acts 9 and Acts 26 are really good jump off places. So if you're taking notes today, you can write that down. Um, Rome was the political superpower in this time. They basically conquered and ruled most of the developed world at that point. They were bigger than the United States of America as far as like political influence. They were the influence. And they had, they had conquered so many nations that are now free, independent nations. But at the time, they were underneath um, Roman rule. And so I'm setting up, why was it so important for Paul to write this letter to the Roman church? Because they were the influential pinnacle of all modern culture at that time. Like, They had technology. They had the banking system. They had the, the, they were the rulers of the world. And what Rome said was what influenced the rest of the world. So you want to start with the influential place, right? So Paul was writing to them. Um, and he says he longed to go to be with them, but he hadn't made that journey yet. He'd done three um, missionary journeys at that point, but he had not made it as far as Rome, the uh, imperial city of Rome. And there were a lot of believers in Rome. Rome was made up of mostly Gentiles, but there were pockets of Jews, um, and both the Gentiles and Jews had had experienced the con- the gospel. The gospel had begun to spread that far already. Um, this is like 56, 58 AD when um, this letter goes out. And the church of Rome was growing like crazy. So he's, he's writing to them because he's had this massive encounter with truth. And God has anointed Paul and he's anointed Peter, and he's, there, he's one of these apostles that has been sent to preach the good news. And he carried that um, responsibility deeply in his heart. 
So the Roman church, um, because it was, they didn't have that religious context, which in some regards is really good, right? To not have a religious context or the, the law. But they also just like heard the good news and then it was like, awesome, we're running. But they didn't have a lot of discipleship or um, experience of being around Jesus. So he really wanted to, to disciple them. And this letter is part of that. Uh, much of, of the book of Romans, if you read church history, so many of the reformations that have happened since Jesus, um, his death and resurrection and ascension, the church began to grow, right? Immediately when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. It says there was 120 and then immediately 3,000 were added to them that day when the Holy Spirit was poured out. And then it just kept growing because people were sharing the good news. So now it's spread 50 some years later and it's all the way in Rome. And the gospel keeps, the, there's no Bible at this point, guys. They're doing a study on the book of Romans together. They're not doing a study on the gospels. It doesn't exist yet. It's literally telling the story of how Jesus came, died, rose again, and changed their lives. That is how the gospel went out. And Rome, because it was this conquering empire, it was all of, you know, it's Rome is the God, basically. That was the culture, and they conquered, and so Rome, it was like all hail Caesar. So for someone to come underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ and to give themselves to Jesus and say, Jesus is Lord, it was almost like a political revolutionary thing that was happening. And Rome didn't like that. So they, like Saul, began persecuting the Christians. And persecution actually caused the gospel to go forth even more. Do you know why? Because they scattered. They didn't just stay in Jerusalem. They didn't just stay in Judea. They didn't just stay in Samaria or Cana or Galilee. They, they dispersed. And they ended up in Rome. They ended up in Spain. They, asked, they ended up in Greece. They ended up in all these places in hiding. But they didn't stop preaching the good news. Persecution is like the secret sauce for revival. And in America, we really don't like persecution very much. I am the first person to say, no, thank you. I don't want to be persecuted. I don't even really want to have to bend over too hard to pick up that thing I dropped, if I'm being honest. Like, I don't like hard things. But in the midst of persecution, in the midst of the pressure and the tension that Julie talked about this morning, actually is where growth happens. It's where you really like the good stuff in your life comes to the surface and you go, this is who I am and this is what's important and I got to tell everybody. So that was going on. 
and the gospel had made its way to Rome. Okay, trying to decide how I want to go. And it was good news. It was really good news. I'm going to read something. Um, I've been reading this book unrelated to this study, um, and it's called The Forgotten Ways by um, Alan Hirsch, and it really talks about the early church and, and church planting and uh, apostolic church movements. Um, I promise you we will get into Romans. I just am setting this up. This is how, this is the climate. This is what is going on. Okay, so I'm just going to read a couple pages out of this. When the early church proclaimed Jesus is Lord, it does so in precisely the same way as uh, he was talking about um, the whole Shema of like Jewish culture is the Lord our God is one. So that's the context that he's coming from, that there is one God, okay? And the Lord is one. So the Christians kept that same mindset he is one. Um, so it would be called like monotheism. Um, monotheism of the scriptures reinforms, restructures around the central character in the New Testament. Who's the central character in the New Testament? Jesus. It's the Sunday school answer. You got it right. Our loyalties are now to be given to God, to Jesus, as he is revealed in and through our revealer and redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. He becomes the focus of our attention and the pivotal point in our new relationship to God. We adhere to him. He not only initiates the new covenant, he is the new covenant. So we have two dimensions to the phase, depending on what word is emphasized. And when the early church proclaimed Jesus as Lord, it does so in precisely the same way with the exact same implications that Israel had proclaimed God as Lord in the Shema. The fundamental religious situation has not shifted all that much, and it never really does. Polytheism was still the dominant religion, um, religious force in the time of the early church, as honestly it is in ours. Polytheism is many gods, and Rome was one of those places. Um, so... This adherence to Jesus' rule is precisely why the Christians, early Christians, eventually had trouble with Rome. In Roman theology, Caesar was a physical manifestation of a god. So if Caesar was a man, but he was the early manifestation of a god that claimed total allegiance, as did Jesus. Furthermore, it was a political genius of Rome to gather all the other gods of the subjugated nations and bring them under the lordship of Caesar. And so to create a religion that lent a deeper religious unity to the diverse political empire. This people group could keep their tribal gods only as long as the people were willing to acknowledge that Caesar was lord over them. And the fact that they were a conquered people indicated that Rome was the supreme god. So the people generally submitted, except for Jews and Christians. And the effect was, so unif was to unify the religions of the empire and to bind people to the state. Sound familiar? The early church rejected this claim of the overlordship of Caesar. The early Christians refused to see Jesus as merely a part of Rome's pantheon of gods, which is so good. 
The confession Jesus is Lord became in their mouths and in this context a deeply subversive claim that effectively undermined the rule of Caesar and all other absolute claims to political lordship. The Christians wanted to bring all of life under the lordship of Jesus, and this meant subverting the lordship of Caesar. So there was this whole, like, we're preaching the good news happening, and that was really their only goal, was to lead people to Jesus and into relationship with Jesus. But Rome took it as a threat, a political threat. Does that sound familiar? But really, it's the only way because God, the Lord our God, is one God. And he does not bow to any other gods. In fact, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. That's in the Ten Commandments. And, and he says, I, I will give my glory to no other. Not to Rome, not to America, not to... Britain or any of the superpowers, Russia, China, China, you have to bow to the lordship of Jesus. And China doesn't want to, so it has to be communist. And that's why the church in China is persecuted, but the church in China is doing what? It's growing faster than the American church because they have come underneath the awareness of Jesus is Lord. And Romans, we're going to get into it, is going to challenge you to put everything underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the reason Paul is writing to these ones is because he wants them to understand. He is not one of your gods. He is not part of your polytheism. He is the God. And there will be no other gods before this God. And when you say Jesus is the way, you are saying, he is the way. There is no other way. Caesar's not my God. I cannot bow to him. Friends, we're going to get into later part of Romans 1, and there's a laundry list of sin in there. And it's going to, if, if your heart isn't connected to what I'm talking about right now of Jesus is Lord... You're going to go, oh, this is a list of behaviors that I can get myself in. It's like having many gods. Is, is what I'm saying making sense? If you want to come underneath a list of, I won't do these sins and feel righteous, it's like having many gods that you're worshiping. But the truth is, is when you have Jesus as Lord in every aspect of your life, he will challenge you when things are out of line. You do not need a list. You do not need a list of behaviors to be properly aligned to God. When he is Lord, everything is in submission to his lordship. All of your thoughts, all of your desires, all of your stuff, and your behavior too. And you don't have to wrestle with, did I sin too much today? Because I don't, I, I want to get this foundation laid before we jump into the second part of Romans 1. 
Because otherwise you'll just take a list of behaviors and go, not in the way, not in the way. Like when I say the way, I mean in Christ. And it's not about that. Am I making sense? I feel like maybe I'm not. When everything comes under the lordship of Christ, everything comes under the lordship of Christ. Your money, your kids, your marriage, what you put on and wear that day. Truly, what you eat, what you drink, what you feel like shooting in your arm or smoking. Everything, what you watch on TV, the words that come out of your mouth, the way you love or don't love people, everything is subject to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that was Paul's encounter when he met Jesus on the road. Everything about him that lined up rightly according to the law was wrong in the reality, in the, in the light of truth. Does that make sense? When he came into the spirit of truth himself and he saw, it was like, this list of rules that I've been keeping my whole life is not getting me where I want to go. Because my heart is not underneath the lordship of this man. Because I am not submitted to his rule and reign. And, and it has to be. Or we'll take this book and we'll make it more legalism. We'll make it just another God. And we like to do that. Because it's easier to have a relationship with a set of rules than it is to be intimately connected to the one that formed you and be submitted to his will and his way. It challenges me every day to be submitted to the Lord. I would rather follow a set of rules. It's easier. But God is a relational God. And he wants to give you everything. He wants to give you all of himself. He's so much bigger than this list of sins that's going to pop up next week. And he doesn't want to be reduced to a manual that you can achieve. Anybody married in here? Yes. Okay. I want to, I want to say this because I'm married to a man. My experience in my relationship with my husband, and this is not him, I'm not throwing you under the bus. He wants a list of things that would please me because his desire is to please me, right? Yes, hallelujah. Well, maybe I will, Mark, but as a woman, any women in the room want to give their spouse a list Okay, 
True intimacy is not a list. True intimacy is connection. Because guess what? I am a complex individual, and my list today will be different tomorrow. So, and that's just the truth. And if our relationship is dumbed down to a list, we're always going to be in tension. Because it's, it's the relationship with the list. It's, and, and you're never going to measure up. But you know what? He doesn't have to do anything on the list if he looks me in the eye and he sees me and he knows my heart. And I don't have to do anything on the list, his list, if we have the same thing. It is true. Real intimacy is heart-to-heart -heart connection. Real intimacy is relationship. And God is no different. I give Justin a list sometimes to help him out. And I want to tell you, God has given us a list to help us out. But he is not bound. This is not our only relationship that we have with him. He's far more relational and deeply heart connected to you than this. This is a glimpse into his heart. And it's a really good start. What if he asks you to do something that's not in here? It doesn't oppose what's in here. But not everything that we do today is even talked about in here. Can you be under the lordship of Jesus beyond the list? Yes. Yes, you can. And that is, that is the whole invitation. Because we already had a list before Jesus came. We already had a list. We already had a manual for how to stay in right relationship with God. And could we do it? Absolutely not. We could not do it on our own. He had to come and immerse himself in our world and look us in the eyes and know us and call our name and change the way we were going. This relational God is the same one that we're going to talk about here. And that is what Paul had encountered. The letters that he wrote to the churches, sometimes they were corrective, but it was always to pull people back to grace. It was always to pull people back to relationship. It was always to pull people back into intimacy with God. And that's what this whole thing is about. The reformations that began to happen in the early church was because people were getting back in relationship with the rules. And Romans, every time, was the catalyst to turn people's hearts back to relationship with God. The Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther came out of the book of Romans. I'm going to read this to you. It's so good. Okay, so John Calvin, eh, 
he had an um, awakening with, he was a, a reformer. Um, he has an understanding to some level. Augustine was another one who had an encounter with, through the book of Romans. He was a theologian. And a lot of these guys are like heroes in the faith, but they had a limited view, in my opinion. Even Luther, he had a similar experience through the book of Romans more than a thousand years after Augustine's. He was a German theologian. This was in uh, like year 1515 when he had an encounter with the Lord after he was teaching the book of Romans to some of his students. And these are his words. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies us by faith. Therefore, I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through an open door into paradise. The whole of scripture has taken on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, it has now become to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. And these passages that Paul wrote became to me a gateway to heaven. And then two years after that encounter, Luther changed the history of the world and the church world when he nailed his 95 theses on the door of the castle in Castle Church in Wittenberg. And it was an act that ended up launching the Protestant Reformation. Two centuries later, John Wesley, who would become the founder of Methodism, also experienced God through the book of Romans. Um, and John's, John Wesley's life ended up launching uh, the evangelical revival of the 18th century. Romans has done the thing that I just said. It has brought people out of religiosity and into intimacy with God. So I'm setting the table for you because I want you to be hungry for intimacy with God. I don't want to just teach this stuff and go through line by line, verse by verse, and not have our hearts deeply connected to the words. These are not just words to bring you into good behavior. I've said that 900 times today. I'm going to say it again. These are not just words to bring you into good behavior. They are words to connect your heart to the heart of the one that formed you. Oh, he's so passionately in love with you. He's so passionately in love with me. He gave himself for us. We don't want to trade what he did, what we just celebrated last week for a dumbed-down version of a set of rules, for practices and principles and theology and doctrine. Our theology and doctrine is like righteousness that's filthy rags, our own. It's just nothing in comparison to knowing him, to knowing him, to loving him. So turn to Romans 1. This is good news. Um, in, we have it in the New King James, I think, for the screen. Um, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, 
and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you are, are the called of Jesus Christ. To all of you who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from our God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm going to stop there. <clears throat> so Paul starts out with good news. When was the last time you heard some good news? This morning. Just now. It is good news. Good news is like something worth telling, right? When really great news happens to us, our first response is usually to tell somebody else. Did you hear about this thing that happened? Did you hear about what happened with so-and-so? Isn't that awesome? That's, that's what good news is. And so Paul is starting out. He's saying, this is good news that happened to me. He identifies himself first as a, a bondservant. And um, that, that word in the Greek is doulos, and it means more than a servant, it means it's not just that he's like enslaved or being kept against his will. He made a conscious choice and decision to serve <coughs> and honor the Lord with his life. And the meaning of this type of servant is someone who has chosen to serve a master out of love, bound with cords so strong that the bond could only be severed by death. Do we have any bond servants in here? Yeah. That's actually what Jesus is looking for. He was a bond servant to us. And death's cords couldn't even sever that. That's pretty awesome. <clears throat> so Paul identifies himself as a lifelong, dedicated self-appointed servant, loyal and faithful, loving servant of Jesus. He declares himself in verse 1 as an apostle. He said he was called to be an apostle. Well, that's actually how you become an apostle, is you're called. You don't just get to say, I'm an apostle. Jesus actually called Paul to be that. And when you read his conversion story, which we're not going to, we don't have time to do this morning, but if you go back and you read Acts uh, 9 and 26, you will see exactly why Paul is actually called to be an apostle. What's an apostle? It's someone who is sent. They are a sent one. They are carrying the message of the kingdom, of the good news of Jesus Christ. And the third thing that Paul says in this is that he is set apart. Set apart. He's saying, I have 
chosen to make my life be about the mission of Jesus Christ. So remember that Romans is an invitation to us. So starting from verse 1, if, if Paul has this encounter with God, we can have that. Two of these three identities that Paul talks about are choices, and one is a mandate from God. One choice to be a servant, a bond servant. Another choice to be set apart. And the one that was called by God, chosen, appointed by God, was he was called out to be an apostle. He was stopped on the road. He was stopped in his tracks. You're going the wrong way. Go this way. <clears throat> so I, I want to make this whole morning personal. This is not just head knowledge. This is not just about a guy named Paul and a church in Rome. What does that mean for your own relationship with Jesus? Just right out the gate in verse 1. Are you willing to be a bondservant of Christ? Are you willing to say yes to being set apart? And some of you in this room, we are all called to be apostolic because that's the type of church that God has called in this, this time is an apostolic church. We are all called to be sent ones. Will you say yes to being sent and to being on the mission of Jesus? <clears throat> and are there areas in your life right now, I just talked about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Are there areas in your life right now that are not underneath the rule and reign of Jesus? Are there things that you're holding back Not willing to submit. Please do not talk to me about that thing, God. I will dedicate everything to you but this. Or are there things that you think are too hard for God to come in and break in? I'm just here to just challenge us a little bit this morning. Are you set apart on mission to bring good news the good news of the gospel. Are you willing to tell your story? Are you willing to tell the story, even the messy parts? You know, I think boundaries is a word that we like to use, and they're good. I'm not speaking against boundaries. Sometimes we really, really need to have more boundaries than we do. But not with our story. Not with what Jesus has done for us. When you, are, when you are his and he has changed your whole life, your story is for everyone. Because the testimony of Jesus, it's like when we tell what God has done, it releases this do it again, God. Do it again. More of that. You have no idea what you, the power of your story will unlock for other people. And when Paul is telling his story in the beginning here, he's like saying, guys, this is what God has done for me. This is what God will do for you. 
So I just want to challenge you in that this morning. Okay, verse 2, verses 2 through 6. Paul is really declaring what the good news is. He's setting up who Jesus was, the gospel story. You can put it up if you want to. It's totally fine. He's really declaring who and what this good news is that changed his life. And he's explaining why he's compelled to share with everyone. And why he's willing to go everywhere, to the ends of the earth, to preach this message. And he really quickly, in four verses, shares the gospel. And he's saying he's not only commissioned to share the good news with others, but he's encouraging the Roman church to step into their call and their place of influence as sent ones also. Okay, I'm going to rattle through this because it's getting late. Um, In verses 7 through 15, I'm going to read those because we didn't read those yet. Or I guess 8 through 15, sorry. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you, for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers making request if by some means now at last I, have, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I might impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. And that is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith of both you and me. And I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often plan to come to you, but I've been hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. For I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is, as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. I love Paul. Um, he's declaring his desire to be with the Roman church. And for several reasons, I told you he understands their influence. He's, he wants to challenge them in their influence in the, the Roman Empire, which is vast. And he wants to help them be rooted and grounded in the truth and the power of the gospel. Um, there's themes in Romans that, that Paul is going to release. They are salvation. What is salvation? What is justification? What is transformation and sanctifi sanctification? look like? What is the righteousness of God? Why the law? What does it look like to walk in the spirit and not the flesh? And then there's so much more, but he has all these huge themes that are really about intimacy with God and what it looks like when you have that. You'll see these themes being released and revealed uh, as we get further into Romans. But Paul is He's saying in, in these verses, in 7 through 15, this is why he's coming. He wants them to stand on a proper foundation. And the main point in that firm foundation is what? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. It's the simple, most profound part of the gospel of Jesus. He is Lord. Um, and then he's also recognizing that there's things that the Roman church can impart to him. 
So he's not coming like some big, you know, itinerant minister. There's nothing wrong with itinerant ministers, so that sounded bad. But he's not coming in like, I have no relationship or care for you as a church. He's not some, you know, big Bubba that walks in and is like, I know everything. He wants to learn too. He wants to be iron, sharpening iron, which is, I think, a really cool thing. And we can learn from that. There were likely some things that needed to be shored up within the Roman community, things that were out of balance. You'll see when we get into it. And he's going to speak to that. Because they are largely a group of Gentiles without a framework of the law, which is great. But they've been influenced by that pagan and polytheistic culture. And so some of those things need to be broken down. This is not how God is. The Lord our God is one. One of the things, I don't know if you noticed it in that little you know, five verses, is that Paul is, and I love this about him, he's not afraid of other cultures or other doctrines or other theologies. When we, like, we like to gather with people that we know and that, like, believe like us, right? Yes? That's why we have denominations. Because we like our brand of Jesus the way we like to have it. Paul is saying, I have something to bring to you. I have something to teach you. But you have something that I, I am going to learn from you as well. And he's saying, I long, he commends them for their worship. In the um, Passion Translation, he says, um, this is in verse 12. Now this means when we come together and are side by side, something wonderful will be released. We can expect to be co-encouraged and co-comforted by each other's faith. And he says, I, I yearn to come face to face with you. Um, he's, he's not afraid to connect with people who might be coming from a different culture. And I don't know if you got that from that little section, but I think that's a challenge to us. I connect with pastors from all over the city and most of them don't know what to do with me. And that's okay. But something that we're learning as we gather together is that even though we're different, we all love Jesus. That's the bottom line. And even though our theology is a little different, the stuff that matters is not. And I honestly think that's what Paul is saying in some of this. We're going to come and grow. We're going to be encouraged by what God is doing in our midst. Some of that stuff doesn't matter. What does really matter is that Jesus is Lord. He's going to, out of relationship, speak truth and correction. But he is encouraging what God is doing that's beautiful. And that is a point of view that I think we could all learn from. It's so easy to look at stuff that we don't jive with, right? And go, eh, that's bad. I don't like that. That needs correction. But what if we stopped and we looked at what is beautiful that God is doing in people's lives and commend them for where God is at work? Anybody like encouragement? I do. 
Paul models that. He gives some really harsh rebukes, but he hero sandwiches them all. This is what you're doing that is good and beautiful. This is what God is doing in you that is so amazing and awesome. This, is, this needs some work, friends. But I love what God is doing in your midst. And may he ever increase his presence. That's, you read all of his letters, they're like that. And this one to Rome is no different. That's how he is addressing them in verses 7 through 15. And, you know, Paul had a framework of truth in the beginning when he was Saul, right? And it needed some major adjustments, like big time. It needed an encounter with love himself. And I think when he was blinded that day and God spoke truth to his heart, He was able to see people the way God sees them. And I just really want the the spirit of truth to blind us today from looking at the crap in each other's lives. (laughs) It's so easy to do. And honestly, even looking at all the crap that's going on in the culture. I was in a furious texting battle yesterday with some of my best friends. We were arguing politics, and I was, you know, I'm pretty good with words, and I can put people in their place really fast. And I did. I was like, oh, you're way off, and this is why. Yuck. Gross. Anybody can do that. Anybody can do that. But can we actually see what God is doing in their hearts to make people think some of the things that they think? Can we actually sit in the tension of disagreement long enough to actually hear what God is doing in someone? Or do we just have to argue it? Am I making sense? (laughs) What? It depends. I know. See, it depends. Because we have our, yeah, but not that. Right? I'm not asking you to take on their mindset. I'm not asking you to worship their gods. But can we actually look for what God is doing in someone's life, even that we don't agree with? Are we that immature in our faith? I'm, I'm saying it harshly because that's the truth. Are we that unstable in our relationship with God that we could be easily moved, that we could not listen to something that might be out of bounds? We need to grow up. We need our love to mature. Because I want to tell you, and hear me say this with all the love in my heart, because I could be the same Pharisee. Paul, those boundaries that didn't line up in the, in the olden days, before his revelation of love and truth, before he was blinded by God and set on a new course, His dividing lines, his I cannot look and see what God is doing here, caused him to kill people. And there is like sort of a spirit that's hovering over the church that wants to pull us in to division real bad. 
and we can start to look at people and not see what God is doing and not see the God-given potential and not see the Imago Dei of someone and start to look at them and go, I hate you. I actually hate you. I am telling you guys the truth. People that their culture so grates against your skin, so grates against the very fabric of what you know and love. God loves them. Dylan Mulvaney, God loves him. Him. I'm not saying you have to drink their beer and want to wear their sports bras that he's promoting. I'm not saying you have to be in alignment and in agreement or that you think it's a good thing or say this is good and this is evil. Evil is evil and good is good. I'm not saying that, but can you look at someone who doesn't look like what you want them to be that challenges the core of your faith and see God in them? Because if we can't, we are going to start holding coats and throwing stones. And this is not the church that Jesus died for. He, he wants his church to look like him. Arms wide open. Anybody can come in. Anybody can have a moment and an encounter with truth that radically changes them and comes underneath the lordship of Jesus. But if we keep picking sides and, and throwing stones... We are not going to be that bride. Do you guys hear what I'm saying? I don't like it either. I'm horrified that they're coming after my gender. As a woman, I'm ticked off. But as a child of God, I'm broken. As a woman of God, I'm broken. And I say, come, Lord Jesus. Shine your light of truth. Shine your light of truth on every road where people are walking down, blinded in darkness. But behold, people who are in darkness will see a great light. How will they see it? Unless we have the heart of God. Because guess what? His kingdom is coming in and through us. Jesus ascended. He blew his spirit upon us. We are the church. We are the Roman church. We are the Jewish church. We are, we're the church. We're all of it. We are the church. And if Paul can see the error in his ways when he was Saul and have his name changed from sought out to small, that's what Paul means, small. No longer am I a big shot with all the answers and all the evidence that, you know, promotes this and I've, I got it all right. He's just like, I know nothing but Christ and him crucified. And I'm just going to tell that message everywhere. We have to be willing to look at some of these things and go, like Paul did to the Roman church, who were in a hot mess. We're going to see it. Like in a few verses, you're going to start seeing the hot mess that they're in. And these are those buttons that are the, well, it depends. These are those categories. Well, it depends. But Paul looked at them just verses before and he said, I can't wait to come and be with you and learn from you. 
and be challenged and encouraged in my faith from you. I'm excited to see what God is doing. He's doing beautiful things in your midst. We'll deal with those things. Once we come underneath the lordship of Jesus together, once we are running after Jesus together, he's going to challenge those things I don't have to. We need to ask the Lord to help us. Because in my own strength, I have a real good argument. In my own righteousness, that scripture multiple times says is garbage. I can get hateful. And I bet you can too. But we are called to a higher law than that. And it is the law of love. And it is the law of transformation. We don't have to be threatened. Because we're not serving a polytheistic God where we have to like, okay, we have to now bow and worship this God so that this stuff is in alignment. Now we're going to bow and worship this one so this stuff is in alignment. We just worship one God and everything is through him. Everything is from him. Everything is for him. That ought to give you so much peace. That ought to remove anxiety. Because we just get to come underneath his lordship. Surrendered to him. And he, he runs the show. And we just say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. So uh, the next two verses, he says, I refuse to be ashamed of sharing this wonderful message. God's liberating power unleashed in us through Christ. For I'm thrilled to preach that everyone who believes is saved. Whoa. Everyone who believes is saved? The Jew first, then people everywhere. And this gospel unveils a continual revelation of God's righteousness. This is the passion. I think that's the New King James. A perfect righteousness given to us when we believe. And it moves us from receiving life through faith to the power of living by faith. And this is what scripture means when it says we are right with God through life-giving faith. I think the moral of this section of the story is just believe come underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ and receive and let everything flow out of that revelation you are my God you are my Lord you're not just my savior but you are my Lord and master you saved me from destruction but now I live for you I am a bond servant to you forever and everything in my life flows out of that place and I'm going to tell my story. I'm going to share the good news. I know I challenged you a little bit just in the first 17 verses of Romans. It's just going to get more. It's going to be great. Come back next week. Um, I'd love to have the worship team just close us with a little worship. It'll make it nice again. 
And then if, if the ministry team is here while um, we're just releasing some worship in this place, if you want prayer this morning, our ministry team would love to pray with you. Let's pray real quick before we shift gears. Jesus, we love you. Lord, I'm so thankful for the moment that I had my Paul, Saul, the light shone bright. You've changed my thinking. You changed the way I saw. You changed the way that I live. And Lord, I'm just asking, could you come and do that again? Could you come and do that again for all of us in this place today? Could you reveal your massive heart of love, not only for us, but for everyone everywhere? God, you are so good. And you may see all the junk that's going on in the world and it's not your heart and it's not your way, but I am confident that you are not a bit concerned. I am confident that you have it all worked out. I'm confident that you are sovereign and that you are Lord and that you are good and that you don't need us to fight on your behalf, God. You just need us to love on your behalf. You need us to be so filled with you. Lord, I thank you that your holiness is not something that has to stand outside of sin, but God, your holiness invades those spaces and it makes it holy. You are not dismayed. You are not discouraged. You are not afraid of sin. But God, you run into those places and you release your light and your truth and all that you are. And you make them holy. So would you release your holiness right now in Jesus' name as we lift up your name in this place? Would you release the spirit of holiness and truth in this place, in our minds, in our hearts? God, break off fear in Jesus' name. Break off judgment in Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray for conviction of the Holy Spirit because we belong to you and we declare that you are Lord. And anything in my life, God, that has not come underneath the Lordship of Jesus Christ, I surrender right now. And I just encourage you to bring that to him too as we lift him up. We surrender. You are Lord. You are good. You are trustworthy. You are holy. You are Lord. And we worship you. Thanks for listening to Jesus Pursuit's weekly sermon. If you would like to be a part of seeing people encounter God, experience transformation, and be equipped to advance the kingdom, you have the opportunity to partner with us through giving at jesuspursuit.org forward slash give. Together, we can make Jesus famous in Albany, the Northwest, and the nations. We hope you have a blessed week, and we'll see you next time.